So this topic that we're going to cover today is probably the what, what is considered in the seerah to be the lowest point of Muhammad's life as a prophet. Just to kind of give you an indication as to how bad this period was. Hazrat Aisha was very young in Makkah and she had a conversation with Muhammad after the migration. So when they were in Medina and after the Battle of Hud. So we're talking from this point, maybe another five, six years. And when Uhud happened, it was much later, towards the end of Muhammad's life, that Hazrat Aisha, when she was sitting with her husband, the Prophet Muhammad she said to him, was Uhud one of the worst things that ever happened for you? Because the Battle of Uhud, if you understand what happened here, was the Muslims had a stalemate situation. They didn't obey the, the Prophet Muhammad They disobeyed him in terms of their position in the war. And as a result for that, and many Muslims had been killed, including his uncle Hazrat Hamza, who was completely mutilated. And there were many Sahabi. And this saddened the Prophet So assuming because she witnessed that time, and she thought that this was probably one of the worst things that he, has, that he had suffered or that he had witnessed. And he actually said to her, this is not the worst time. He said, the worst time I ever had was the time when he went to a place called Taif, which is outside of Makkah, and how he got treated there. And that time when he went to Taif to carry his dawah was in a year what the scholars refer to as a year of sorrow. It is when Allah SWT really threw Muhammad into a very difficult test, a very difficult scenario. And one of the reasons why this happens, I always say that in your lifetime, in your lifetime, you will always suffer one the lowest points, right? So if you, if in hindsight, if you ever graph your life, your happiness, how things are going well, there will always be a low. And really, depending on the kind of person that you are, your belief, your iman, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala would test you according to your iman. The greater your test, the greater the reward. And those who have stronger iman will be tested harder. And I remember this because Muhammad Sallam on his Last days, the pain was so bad that he was suffering the illness. His fever was so hot that one of the Sahabi tried to touch his forehead and couldn't even leave his hand there. It was so hot. And he, he panicked. He said, he said Ya Rasul, your, your head is so hot. The fever is overcoming you. I mean, this is not even normal for a human being. And he responded back and said that every prophet suffers seven times more than a human being does. And the reason why is because their reward is that much greater because of the test they go through. And then after that is the one with the greater of Iman. And the one after that is with the lesser of the Iman and so forth. So we should always remember this. It's very important. And I, I, I try my best to remind myself when you know you have difficult situations and, and you could always lose sight of why these things happen. But then you remind yourself that Allah SWT doesn't leave the believers to just wander off in life itself. Allah guides you and Allah protects you and Allah creates these scenarios to make things better for you. Right? That's the key thing to remember. When you have difficulties in your life, whether it's your health, whether it's your wealth, whether it's your loved ones, remember that if you are true to Allah, if you are true to the deen, 
then this is nothing but a blessing from Allah. This is the way we look at it. The non-Muslims, the kuffar, they will see this as a bad omen. But we would take it from a good, from a, from a good point of view. And the way we know is good because we say that if it brings you closer to Allah, the event that occurs in your life, if it brings you closer, then you know that Allah is giving you a test to relinquish of your sins and to give you a greater reward. And this follows up with something great afterwards. But if this takes you away from Allah, when people get hit by calamity, then what happens is sometimes people start to drift away from Islam more slowly and slowly. And that's a real big problem because then Allah says, this is where I put punishment on you. And there's various eyes of Quran where Allah says, they try to learn and they try to listen, but we've closed their heart, we've closed their ears, we've closed their eyes because of their ignorance. So this period was like the, the 10th year of the Prophet's prophethood. So in Makkah, because of that boycott that the MPs of Makkah, the Quraysh, had imposed upon the citizens of Makkah against the Prophet and his family, that boycott encompassed no trade, no marriages, no food, no, no discussions, anything of any. It was a complete sanction, a complete sanction. And a sanction you know today, if anyone imposes a sanction on a country, it devastates that country. Right, it devastates. The prices of food goes through the roof. People can't feed their families. If you are sick, you can't get treated because you can't get medical equipment. It devastates everyone. And this is very similar. As a result of that, the one man that used to protect Muhammad and who was the leader of the Banu Hashim and the Banu uh, Abdul Muttalib family was, uh, was his uncle Abu Talib. And Abu Talib was the father of you, as, as you should know, the father of Hazrat Ali, right? Hazrat Ali, the famous Sahabi, who is the cousin of Muhammad So Abu Talib was the one that protected the Prophet because that was his real uncle, blood uncle. So he took responsibility to take care of him. And during this point, now I just want you to make this clear, whilst he was under the protection of Abu Talib, nobody could touch the Prophet. They hated him. They talked behind his back, they tried to destroy his reputation, but they physically were not allowed to touch him because that would mean war between the two families. No harm came to him. At the time when this boycott, because Abu Talib is quite old, this boycott was very harsh on Abu Talib from a physical side and from a mental, emotional side because it was very distraughting for him. And as a result, his, his health deteriorated very, very quickly. So Abu Talib was now on his deathbed. And so many of the Quraysh, they used to come to see him because Abu Talib was highly respected amongst the Quraysh as well. But Muhammad used to be with him consistently because he was sick and he tried to convince his uncle to take the Shahada. Really wanted him to take the Shahada. At the same time, the Quraysh that used to visit him, specifically people like Abu Jahl and Abdullah bin Ubayyah, when these people used to come to see him, they used to say to Abu Talib, now you are at your point of demise. Don't you think now is the time to talk to your nephew and make a compromise? Because what after you pass away, do you really want civil unrest? Do you want war to break out in your land amongst your people? Talk to him. Tell him, if you want to follow Islam, then follow it. Take it into the mountains. Take it into your homes. But don't bring it outside 
Don't bother us. Don't bother our people. Don't bother our community. Let us carry on doing what we're doing, which is complete jahliya. Give us the ability and the right to carry on destroying nations and what they're effectively saying. Economically ruining people, taking the opportunity out away from people. We don't want him to bring this so-called justice if you want to do the right thing. So Abu Talib calls upon Muhammad like he did previously and he said to him, your people have come to me and they've said to me that there should be a compromise. What do you think about this? Muhammad responded to Abu Talib, they can have this compromise only if they take one thing, the kalima, the shahada. If they take the shahada, the land will be theirs, the kingship will be theirs, the wealth will be theirs, because they will be Muslims, there's no issues. Just take the shahada, the acceptance of one God and that I am the messenger of Allah. I don't want anything else. And one narration talks about that they were standing there and they scoffed at him, they said to him, we'll take 10 kalima from you, we'll, take, we'll give you 10, what do you want? What is a kalima? Because kalima just means an oath. And he said, the kalima of one God and I am the messenger. And they laughed at him. He said, look at this guy. He wants to bring 10 gods into one. In their rational mind, 10 is better than one. Oh, they want to make it less. Listen to what he's saying. He's talking rubbish. And then they got up and they left. So Abu Talib position, what was his position with Muhammad Sallam? Abu Talib's position was he was absolutely convinced that Muhammad was the Prophet of God. He was convinced that there was only one Allah. We know that from the very early stages because when he was a child, he could see the miraculous things that were happening, the barakah he used to bring and all the stories of the monks that used to talk about how the, the rocks used to give him salam and the trees used to bow. He's heard it, he's seen it, he's convinced. But we have a technical problem here in the belief. Because one thing he wouldn't do is, as this story indicates, Muhammad said to Abu Talib, I just need you to take the shahada. Give me something that on the day of judgment, I can fight your case, fight your corner in front of Allah SWT to save you. So just understand this. Abu Talib responds back and says to him, if it wasn't for my people, the Quraysh, that they would mock me and they would destroy my reputation and my lineage reputation if I became Muslim. If it wasn't for that, I would have accepted it. And that was the thing. And these people used to come back and there's different narrations that as he was dying, Muhammad was there, Abu Jahl was there, Muhammad was convincing him to take the shahada. Abu Jahl saying, do you want to really want to take the shahada and destroy your legacy, ruin your father's name? What are you, people going to say about you? Do you not want to leave a good legacy behind? Because after you die and you take the shahada, people will mock you. Your name will be ruined. And for that reason, he didn't take it. And as a result of that, the eventuality was that Abu Talib passed away as a kuffar. So one important thing, when I read this, the first thing that clicked into my mind is, it doesn't matter whether you believe that Allah exists like he did. And it doesn't matter whether you accept that Muhammad is the final messenger. That doesn't make you a Muslim. Because Shaitan believed the two. He knew that Allah existed. Shaitan didn't Shaitan even make dua to Allah. Ya Allah, 
give me respite until the day of judgment. He still makes dua, right? Give me this, give me that. So he does all these actions. He knew Adam Salam was a prophet. He knew that Muhammad was a prophet. But the problem is, he disobeyed, he rejected it. And the scary thing about this is, that if someone like Abu Talib accepts that God exists, logically accepts that Prophet Muhammad is the final messenger, the Qur'an is the word of God, this isn't enough for belief because you are still not following the rules. You acknowledge it, but you're not accepting it. You understand? There's a difference there. You're not following the rest of the rules. So how is that any different to a Muslim who says, I take the kalima, I take the shahada, I believe in Allah, I believe in the Qur'an, I believe in the Prophet but I don't follow the rules of Islam. Have you ever thought of that for a second? How is that Muslim any different from Abu Talib? And that's the scary thought. Because we have Muslims today who reject the laws of Allah, right? What do I mean by that? Okay, Allah says you have to pray five times a day. You have to do your salah. And then you've got brothers sitting there with you, you're watching TV or you're out somewhere and you say, we should pray. I don't want to pray. Isn't that a direct rejection of Allah's hukum? Where does, that, where, do you, where, where does that put that individual? So we are walking on very scary grounds here, very dangerous ground. If you think that you are Muslim because you took the shahada, because you accept Allah, you accept the Prophet, so did Abu Talib. What did they say? Sahabi came to Muhammad and he said to him about Abu Talib. He said, what were you able to do for Abu Talib? But before I mention this, the verse of the Qur'an that was revealed regarding Abu Talib. Muhammad when he died, when, when Abu Talib died, Muhammad said, I will continue to make dua for you until Allah stops me. And then the ayah of the Qur'an was revealed in Surah Al-Qasas where Allah said, O Prophet and believers, it is not befitting upon you to make dua for a polytheist, a kuffar, when the truth has been shown to him and he has rejected it. And if he has rejected it, there is no dua for him. The whole point of the dunya is, it is a test. You have a life opportunity, literally a life opportunity to find the haq and the truth. And if you wasted it, it's done. Allah is saying that book is closed. Every exam and every test you do in this world, eventually comes to a close. And they say, put down your pens, turn over your paper and put your hands down. It's done. Don't cheat now. Allah says, done. So the point was being made here and Allah warned him. He says, even if they are your loved ones. So there he's, Allah saying that even if your father dies or your son dies and your mother dies and they were kuffar, you are forbidden to make dua for them because they had the opportunity while they were here to seek the truth and they didn't. That's the hard truth. And this was devastating for Muhammad It was hard for him knowing that this was going to be the situation. So the Sahabi, one of the Sahabi said to Muhammad what have you done for him? What could you do for him? He said, I took him from the depths of hell. There's seven layers of hell. I took him from the depths of hell and Allah brought him to the most shallow part. To the point that when his feet is on hell fight, when his ankles are in that fire, his brain boils and it doesn't stop. Everything remains, the torture just keeps going. Your legs won't burn, it'll stay there, it'll just boil your brain. 
That's it. That's all he's going to get. And that, he'll get that for eternity. There'll be no stopping. That's the best he could do for his uncle. So when you think about these things, you begin to realise how much advantage we take. We think that we're Muslims. You know, we always say, there's a, there's, a, you know, there's a hadith that says, if you say, everyone who has a kalima will enter. No, take it in the context of other hadith and ayah and you begin to realize there are many other conditions to this. Because you cannot say the kalima, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not Harry Potter, it's not a magic word that's just going to get you into, into paradise. It is about your belief. And if you reject any part of Allah's belief, and that's conscious, consciously rejecting it, it's time for prayer, I don't want to do it. You're done! You're done, it's game over. And we have to take it very seriously. So we have to try and make effort, make effort to try and do this. So there's many lessons here. There's many different lessons that we can learn from that, and we'll, we'll try to cover this. So when he had passed away, Muhammad told Hazrat Ali, the son of Abu Talib, go and bury your father. And Ali comes back to Muhammad Sallam and says, but he's a polytheist. He's a kuffar. He did not accept Islam. He says, be quiet and do as you're told. Go bury your father and come back to me and do not get distracted. So he goes off, he buries him and he comes back. Hazrat Ali was narrating this hadith. He says, I came back to see the Prophet and my clothes had mud on it. I came straight back after burying my father. Now remember, the rule of janazah was not instilled then. There was no rules of janazah because salah was not made far by this time either. He buried him and he came back. Then Muhammad made a dua for Hazrat Ali. And Hazrat Ali said, that dua was the best thing I ever had in my life. The fact that Prophet made a dua for me and that dua was extensive. But here the most important thing was the issue of Iman. Iman is not about just accepting Allah and the Prophet It's about all the other elements of this as well. And I think we have a problem here with all of us. That we have to be very clear about our position. Because many people are in this state where they think just because they have the Shahada, just because they have these elements of their belief, that no matter what happens on the Day of Judgment, Allah will say, but you're Muslim, you're okay. That is not the criteria. No scholar will ever agree to this element. It is about your actions, what you accept, and definitely what you reject. When Allah makes a law, for example, you've got the, let's say the feminist movements, Muslim feminist movement, they'll say, I accept prayer, I accept fasting, but I don't believe hijab is fard. I think that I disagree with that. I don't think that makes any sense, and I think that rule should be changed. Bang! You rejected the hukum of Allah. That takes you outside the fold of Islam. So these things are very important. So when it comes to salah, your fasting, all these, we should be very, very conscious about what we are dealing with here. So as a result of this now, Muhammad protection has now gone. The moment his protection has gone, they thought, now we have field day with him. Now, if you remember the story where Muhammad went outside the Kaaba and he prayed, and Uqba bin Abu Mu'ayt, and you know, said, who's going to take the entrails of this she-camel who's just given birth and throw it on his back? This is what they started doing to him. Another hadith explained that they used to take those intestines rubbish 
and they used to, when Muslim wasn't looking, they used to put it into his cooking pot. And the Muhammad used to come, he used to see it, pick it up with a stick, the rubbish, the gunk. And he used to walk outside their house and he used to say to them, is this the love of a neighbour from the Abdul Manaf? And then he used to throw it out in the streets. He never retaliated, he just, is this, is this how I should be treated? There were times he used to walk and they used to pick up rubbish and they used to chuck, doing all these disgusting things. It's hurtful. When Muhammad used to come back to his house and his daughters used to see the rubbish on his face, the, the, the entrails of, an, uh, uh, of camels on his back, they used to cry, cleaning their father. It, how insulting is that? Especially to someone that you love so much. There was no more protection for Muhammad And then, after this event, only about 35 days later, what happened? His beloved wife, Hajar Khadija, passes away. Double wham. Abu Talib was the political strength, the physical power that protected him from the Quraysh. And his wife was his embodiment of strength and foundation. She was the woman that supported him when everyone rejected him. She was the one that accepted it. She was the one that said to him, it's not the jinn or the devils that come to you when Angel Jibril came. It is nothing but someone good. And then she checked with her uncle, Warqa bin Nufel, who said, this is definitely Archangel Gabriel that came to you. She supported him in every single way. Whenever he used to go out and he used to get battered mentally, he used to come back and she used to say, don't worry, what you're doing is great. You just carry on. She's the one that used to cloak him. He was like a baby in front of her. She used to cuddle him and hug him and put blanket around him. Now she has passed away. Muhammad buried her himself. And the Sahabi said, months went and we did not see a single smile on his face. And there were times the Hadith said he was so distraught that he would not even come out of his house. He used to sit in the corner of his house and he used to cry. And the Quraysh used to walk past his house, listening to him whimper, and they used to laugh at him. You know, people, even your en enemies that come to you to give condolences. You know, when you watch these mafia movies, even then your enemy that says, you know, we give our condolences and then they'll shoot you and kill you later. They didn't bother doing that. They were laughing and joking, like, look at him. If he was a prophet of God, his wife is gone. Why didn't God keep her? Abu Talib is gone. It was just emotionally the fact that he was all over the place because his wife died, his uncle went, he was physically being abused. Wow, this was just non-stop. And the love he had for Khadija, you need to understand, if you look at some of the hadiths, that even many years after she passed away, every time he used to sacrifice a, a sheep, do a qurbani, he used to always send, and very expensive for him, he used to always send you know, the legs of the best part to Hazrat Khadija's friends. And one day, once he was in Medina, and he was sitting there, and Khadija, Hazrat Khadija had a, a sister by the name of Hala. And Hala came into the house to see Aisha and, and Muhammad Sallam. And when she came, he could hear the voice, and he got confused for a second because she sounds exactly like his wife. It threw him off. And then she reads, she goes, oh Allah, it's Hala. I thought it was Khadija. But it wasn't. And so much respect was given to Hazrat Khadija while she was alive that Jibreel came to see Muhammad once and 
Hazrat Khadija was coming with a vessel of food. So she was walking and Jibreel said to Muhammad Khadija is now coming with a vessel of food for you. Let her know now that Allah has built her a house made of pearls and where she will live in Jannah, there will be no distress and there will be no pain for her. And on top of that, Allah sends salam to her and give her my salam as well. Look at that. No one got that treatment. Allah specifically sends his salam to Hazrat Khadija. And they say the reason why she would no, have no distress, because not once in her life did she raise her voice at her husband, did she shout at him, did she have a go at him, did she put any stress or pressure on him. She kept him nothing but stress-free and 100% supported him. And that is why Allah says in Jannah, she will have no stress, nothing, not an ounce of headache. Look at us. You know, we have pressure of our children. We have pressure of even trying to cook food for someone or worries about this. Imagine you have no, imagine waking up and you have nothing to worry about. That's not actually physically possible for a human being in this dunya. It's physically not possible. But imagine you had nothing. Allah removes all of this. That in itself, if Allah gave you, gave you that here, would that not be heaven for you? That would be enough, isn't it? With no pressure. This is the reward that Allah gave. And Muhammad used to always talk about her, always talk about her, to the point that Hazrat Aisha, when she was married to him, she, got so, she goes, I used to be so jealous, so jealous. And I used to say to him, why do you keep talking about that red-lipped mouth old woman when Allah has given you someone better? And you know what Muslim said? He said, Allah hasn't given me anyone better. She believed in me when everyone rejected me. She supported me when everyone was against me. She fed me when everyone boycotted me. She gave me everything and through her, Allah gave me children and specifically a son through her. Except for Mary of the cop that came later, but this hadith was earlier. This is the respect and love. She was someone very, very special. And he never got married for many years after that, after Hazrat Khadija passed away. So this was a devastating blow for him. And then, obviously, the third and the final blow, which was even harder, was the fact that when Muhammad realized that because of the Quraysh in his community, you imagine you give dawah in Slough or Birmingham or whatever it may be, and everyone is turning against you. Not just, it's one thing when people just reject you. And it's another when people laugh at you. But when they're waiting outside to beat you up, what choice do you have? So Muhammad decided with Zayd bin Haritha, who they called his adopted son. He decided after a very hard decision, after many years of trying to give dawah, and he, no one was really doing anything. No one was really taking any interest. And most of that was because of the pressure of the government not to allow to people to support. Because if you followed Muhammad then they would boycott you. Then they would treat you bad. Nobody wanted to sacrifice themselves for the sake of Allah. Yet Muhammad done this and the Sahabi did this. So he took the decision, I'm going to take the dawah to Taif. Okay. Taif is not very far from Makkah. It's probably about an hour, let's say. They call Taif and Makkah the Twin Cities. They're very close to each other. 
these two cities were always in competition. They do have blood ties, but they have their temples with their gods. And Taif was always jealous of Makkah because they had the Kaaba, and people used to come to this city to do business and trade and to do their tawaf. And they, had their t they wanted people to come to their temples, to their city. They had this very strong, difficult relationship. It was a love and hate relationship that they had. So Mahzab decided, I will try my luck in Taif. And he didn't want to risk anyone attacking him, harming him, or even knowing that he was going to Taif to do Dawah. So that if they knew they would try to prevent him, or if they knew they would try to spread rumours over there fast. So Muhammad a journey that took two days by foot, he took that journey, he had camels, he had mules that he could take. He said to Zabi Haritha, we will walk, because I want no one to know that we are going. So they walked through the night, and then he ended up to this place in Taif. And Taif was a very big hustle and bustle kind of city. So when he, re when he arrived there, Taif was used to be run by one leader, right, one chieftain. He died and he had three sons, Yalil, Masood and Habib. All three brothers, they inherited the power of Taif and that's a very powerful position. That's like Makkah, think of it like London and think of, I don't know, think of Taif like Birmingham, right? The next big city or Manchester. So all three brothers had an agreement that we will equally share our position. So when Muhammad entered into Taif, he wanted to go and see them. He wanted to in talk to them about Islam. So he sat with them and he spoke to them about Islam and he said to them that I am the Prophet and I'm trying to invite you to Islam and they looked at him Yalil responded first and he looked at Muhammad and he said if Allah picked you as a Prophet I swear by Allah I would tear down the clothes of the Kaaba and that was sacred to tear it down is an insult so for him, he's saying, if you're chosen, I would insult the religion. Muhammad kept quiet. The other brother, Masood, then responded, if you are indeed the Prophet, why has Allah chosen you? There's millions of people much better than you. So it can't be much of a God if he's picked you. Muhammad kept quiet. And then the last brother, Habib, he said, well, if you truly are the Prophet, then all I can say to you is, I am not worthy of talking to you because you are such a great Prophet. But if you're a liar, then you are beneath my shoes and you're not even worthy of sitting in the same sitting as me. Muhammad understood their position. They rejected him. The Prophet Muhammad stood up. He said, I respect, respectfully understand what you're saying. I just ask for one request, please. Could you please keep this meeting private? Please do not tell anyone. He feared the fact that if they went back to the Quraysh, that this happened, that this will give bolster them, boost them up even more, and they would further attack Mansa Salam. He said, yeah, no problem. You, off you go, leave. So Mansa Salam left the meeting, went into the town of, of, the, of Daif, these three, Jahil, Kufar, didn't leave it at that. 
they decided to get a whole bunch of people, tell them what happened, and said when he walks the streets, because what happened was Muhammad while he was in Taif, he started to give dawah to people. So when they find out that he was giving dawah, they got offended. And after we rejected him, we're the kings, we're the leaders. We told him no, and he's still doing this. So they hired a whole bunch of thugs, and they said, you know when you hire a bunch of thugs and you want to start a massive big protest and you get a couple of hoodlums to start up a riot and everyone else jumps in. So it could be a peaceful protest and you get hire a few thugs, they start kicking off, start pushing and shoving someone, kicks off one fight, another fight, another fight, gets out of control. They hired a bunch of people and they said, when he walks through the streets, start pelting him with stones and rocks. The hadith describes, and it wasn't actually described because the only Zayb bin Hadith at the time was a Sahabi was, that was with him. This was narrated many times, and this was narrated later in Medina when the people of Taqif became Muslims. And they said that we remember when he came. The street was lined up. Imagine you go from Langley all the way to Burnham, and the roads were lined up with people. As he started to walk down that road, kids, men, women picked up stones and they started throwing it at Muhammad Sallam. The hadith they wanted to say, that blood poured down, they could hear the sticking sound of his sole of his feet to the sandals. There was so much blood. So much blood coming off him. Zayb bin Haritha tried to cover him up, protect him, all the way until they got out, until they got out by three or four kilometers outside of Taif. And Zayb bin Haritha suffered a very severe concussion. Muhammad had no idea where he was. He was so upset that physically, this is physically the whole town beat him. For the sake of Allah, look how Allah tested him even further. You say the Prophet of Allah, the Prophet of God, right? Has the Prophets of God have favors. They have favors in the Akhirah, but they are the ultimate ultimate examples to us. We, we, we can't even bother to give dawah because we're worried about our jobs. We, th we think, we create this idea in our mind, oh, we're going to get fired if I go and pray Jummah. No, you won't. You are stopping yourself. Shaitan is telling you this and you won't bother doing the, going the extra mile, making the effort. When this happened, the most beautiful thing about this particular event was this dua that Muhammad had made. And this dua, this dua that the Prophet made was so beautiful that Muhammad thought that he had done something wrong. And he made the dua to Allah. He said, Ya Allah, forgive me if I have failed. Forgive me if I have failed. I do my best for everything. And if I am not worthy, then please forgive me and guide me. This is the dua that Muhammad had made, right? Look at that. We, when we lose everything, we start blaming Allah, don't we? We start blaming Islam for everything. And yet Muhammad says, I am insufficient for you. I haven't done enough. Forgive me. When he was, when he was about three, five, six kilometers outside of, Ta uh, of Taif, he was in a vineyard of the two brothers, Utba and Shaiba bin Rabia. They were Meccans, right? They had a vineyard, they had bought a piece of land. And at a distance they could see Muhammad Salam and Zayb bin Haritha just completely wrecked. They had a slave, a Christian slave by the name of Adas. 
And they said to Adas, they felt sorry for him. Obviously, you're humans as well. He's their Meccan fellow man. He's part of their family. He said, take this grapes and take it to, to Muhammad. Give it to him. So they, he walked over Adas and he gave him the grapes. So Muhammad looked at him while he's sitting there, completely out of it, takes the grapes. They're hungry, they're thirsty. He takes it and he says, Bismillah rahman rahim Adas is shocked. He says, what is this that you're saying? I know what this is, but not people of this area, they don't say this. They're polytheists. This is, this is not from of these people. This is something of people of Ahad, of one God. And he said, who are you? He goes, I am Muhammad, the messenger of Allah. And he said, who are you? He goes, my name is Adas and I'm a Christian from Nivah. And Muslim responded, he says, oh, so you are from the land of Jonah. He goes, how do you know about Jonah? He goes, Jonah is a, my brother. He is a prophet like I am. And this is what shocked Adas. And he started to kiss Muhammad's hand. And Utbah and, and, and uh, Sheba could see what was going on. And when they come back, they go, look at that. He says, even when he's at his worst point, he carries on giving dawah and converting. He can't even leave our slave alone. So when the slave came back, he said, what did he say? He goes, he said this. He's a prophet of God. Now at that point, when Muhammad and Zayb bin Haritha were there and they were beaten and their emotional state was at its low, Jibreel came down to see Muhammad Jibreel said, Allah has sent me, he has seen everything. Allah has ordered me to command that angel over there and Muhammad looked and he could see the angel that was standing on the mountain. The angel of the mountain said to Muhammad O Prophet of God, your wish is my command, whatever you ask. I am the angel of the mountains that surrounds Taif. Give the order and I will crumble this mountain on every single one of them. What happened to people at Thamud when they got completely destroyed? You give the command for what they have done. Because no one has done this to Muhammad Give the command, we'll destroy them, finish them. And what did the Prophet said? He said, no. For the sake that their children will become the believers of Islam. I, I don't want anything to happen. This is the mercy of Muhammad But there's many lessons from this that you learn. The most prominent one is how committed this man Muhammad is. He sets the bar for everybody else. The problem that we have here is that we have an option to follow Islam or not to follow Islam. If you ask someone like Bilal who was growing up with us in the early days, our, we were not amalgamated community, we were Muslim community. And we had to follow Islam, we were forced to go to the masjids and this was a blessing from Allah And because of the way that we were, we weren't so easily accepted by the kuffar which forced us to be within our own community, protected by our own community. And this is one of the other hukums that really you be with your own people. Abu Talib didn't accept Islam because his direct environment and friends were all kuffar. 20 years later, you all appeared, the youngsters. And you have been completely amalgamated. You call it progression. 
we call it you sold out. Because when you amalgamated with the non-Muslims, the Sikhs, the Hindus, the Christians, the agnostics, the atheists, even the Jahil Muslims, you sold your own religion short. You know how I know? How many of you, every time you go out, when it's Maghrib or Asr, do you say, are we going anywhere near a masjid so we can pray? Because the ones who don't want to pray are going to dictate to you the agenda. And if you've been taught to pray, you will miss and skip your prayer because you choose to be with the people who don't want to do it. And you gave up the deen right there on the spot. You chose them over Allah. And Allah said in the Quran to Muslim what? He says, who has more right over your fear? They do or I do? Because if you choose them, then just wait until we'll see what happens on the Day of Judgment. And that's the danger that you live in. That we were fortunate enough, that we had enough protection, that we kept hold of our deen. You will, you will struggle to hold your level of your deen. Unless you learn. Unless you dictate and sacrifice. Until you can turn around and be selfish and say, I'm not going to go out because I'm going to miss my salah. Or we go somewhere where I can do my prayer. And when I use that as example, I mean that in every sense. I mean when you go to work, you're not going to go to and amalgamate with your friends to go out for drinks because you want to be part of the team, because you want that promotion. That you're not going to sacrifice your religion because you don't want to offend them, but you're willing to them to offend you. This is the, this is the level that you are, this is the danger that we are now playing with. But the belief aspect of it is the most important. The first point that I made. Remember in this life, acknowledging whether Allah exists and the Prophet is the, word, is the messenger of Allah isn't enough. That does not give you Iman and that does not give you the Taqwa that you need. And that definitely does not give you the title of being a Muslim. What gives you the title of being a Muslim is the moment when you submit. And submission means whatever Allah has commanded you, you'll do it. It's fine here and there if you are unable to follow the commands. You regret it, you, but you acknowledge Allah's position. You acknowledge, I have sinned, I have done this. I'm talking about those who say, I just don't pray, just don't want to. There's plenty of us who do that. There are people who don't fast. Youngsters don't want to fast because just don't want to fast. That is a direct rejection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet Muhammad So there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. The year of sorrow was a devastating year for the Prophet Muhammad Many things have happened to him. He got pushed to the limit. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds back in the verse of Quran, Wal usri yusra. For every test that occurs in your life, if you have patience, if you have sabr and you have shukr, if you have these two elements, then wait until Allah relieves you of your pain. And then the next story will talk about something phenomenal that will happen to Muhammad to lift his spirit, to give him the greatest boost he needs to complete his mission until the end. Jazakallah khair.